Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about how God will make all things new. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to be prayed for. Our church has a prayer team that consistently prays for people. Sometimes those people are in our church, sometimes they're not. But anyone who asks for prayer gets prayed for. I don't know who will hear this sermon, but I do know that it will be people all over the country and to some degree around the world. If I know one thing about people, it is that they have fears, failures, and struggles. In the midst of all that, I believe that God responds to our prayers. We may not get everything we want, but God does work all things for the good of those who love Him, specifically in response to prayer. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. Go to creekside.me and click on Get Prayer. It'll take you to a form, submit the form, and we will pray for you. Again, it's creekside.me. I hope you'll take me up on this offer. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you learn and live more fully for the glory of God. In fact, I'm praying that it will. Today, we begin a new series, and it's a new series called All Things New. What this series is about is really uh, what we can look forward to because of the things that we celebrated last week, that Jesus got out of the grave, and because he got out of the grave, we too can experience resurrection. And ultimately, we who are Christians will experience the return of Jesus, and he will make for us all things new. Last week I talked about there's two destinies for all people, and they are the the second death or the first resurrection, and what follows is really a description of those things and and their finality and their eternality and and what they're going to look like forever and ever and ever. And and today we start as the only one in in this series that isn't just a, we're all just going to feel good when we leave. For the, for the rest of our time in Revelation, I think we're all just going to walk away going, that's going to be great someday. But this one is an interesting one as we talk about all things new because it's, it's the negative side of it. It's what God is going to do away with and not what he is going to create in his new creation. But I think at the same time, even though it's the negative side, and when I say negative, I don't mean bad, I just mean the negative side. Uh, I think that as we look at this, it's so important because it's actually really hopeful for us who are Christians. And the reason that what we're gonna look at today is hopeful is simply because evil is, is all around us. I think of just this, just this one thing, and I'll list a few more, but just for me, if you're a parent, you've experienced this. If you're a parent of young children, you've experienced this. You drop your kids off at school, and there's a part of you that thinks, are they going to get shot today? And if I said nothing else, we would be like, there's definitely evil in the world that that thought is anywhere in my mind that somebody would walk into a school and shoot little children is horrific. And I would need no other. I know I don't have to talk you into the idea of evil probably, but I would need to say nothing else except for that. There is evil, 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 evil in this world. 
I mean, you could extend that to war and sexual deviation, even the sexualization of children, child abuse. I thought this week of those who profit off of the drug trade. And when you walk around in downtown Portland and you see what drugs are doing to people and you consider that, that somebody's getting rich off of that, that's their business model is to do that to people, you're like, wow, there is horrific evil in the world. There is terrible, terrible evil. And one of the things that God is going to make new is that someday he will, and this is what we see in our passage, he will completely and totally and eternally put an end to evil. He will completely and totally and eternally destroy evil and that which is evil. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so as we move into this new series, I really, I really do want you to see it as a series of hope. And I, and I think, I know that next, starting next week, it'll be a turn in its lightness because going through the book of Revelation, a lot of it's been heavy. There's been a lot of heavy subjects and difficult subjects to talk about and to think about and all of that. Um, but, but now I think as we move to the end of this, it is very much meant to be for us encouraging and inspiring and hopeful. And here's how it starts. Revelation 27. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, so it's been my goal as we've moved through the book of Revelation, you know this, to, to help you see it as a book of impact and not just interest because, and you've heard me say this a lot of times, if you've been with us since October and you've heard it, you know, more times than you wanted to hear it. But, but a lot of times when we read the book of Revelation and, and a lot of times just as we read the Bible in general, but specifically and uniquely the book of Revelation, we make it a book where we like to argue about the details, but we fail to understand how it can make an impact in our lives. In fact, I would go so far as to say that we actually don't even care about how it can impact our lives. We just want to argue about the details. And the reason for that is, some of you are like, man, Chad's a broken record, but I'm, I'm going to keep reminding us of these things until we finish in a few weeks. Uh, it's because this book is an apocalypse. It's a piece of apocalyptic literature. It's the only one uh, for as a full book in the in the Bible, there's other pieces of apocalyptic literature that are sections. Was the only book that's an apocalypse in the New Testament, and because of that, it contains signs and symbols that we must decipher, and those things can be difficult, and so it lends itself to an argument because one person comes along and says it means this, and another person comes along and says it means that, and so as I've gone through this book. I've tried to say, hey, let's be impacted by it, not just interested in it. That's important. But I've also, as your, your pastor and as somebody who wants you to be able to understand Scripture better, I've given you a picture of kind of the broad understandings of this book. So I haven't done this in a while, so hopefully you can forgive me, but I want to remind you of this too. So we have the historicists who see the book of Revelation as a timeline through church history and so, you know, you go all the way back. It begins with, the, with Jesus and then it moves its way, like when he walked to the earth, and it moves its way to the modern day for most people. That's how they see it. So it's a timeline 
preterist. See, the book is primarily about events that happened in the first century. And so they read it through that lens that the things that they're seeing in it, they can be connected to, you know, events and places and people in the first century. Futurists see it as primarily about future events that will take place near the return of Christ. And so the futurists, that's most Protestants today in America, they see it as something that will take place. And so it's prophetic in the futuristic kind of meaning of prophecy. And then idealists, they say, there is no historical value to this book. It's just a book that through signs and symbols teaches us about how we ought to live our lives and how we ought to think about the difficult, evil things that we see around us and how we ought to respond to those things. Uh, what do we do with evil, for example? And what is God going to do with evil? And so there's these broad groups and, and they understand the book differently. And as I want to keep in the forefront of your mind, hopefully I'm not boring you, these groups, even though all of those things are true, very often see the same principles and applications as they move their way through the book. It's like, well, this is how this is meant to impact us right here. They don't talk about it that much, but they still see the same applications for our lives. But then we get to Revelation chapter 20, and there's this new subject introduced. And it was actually introduced last week, but I wasn't for sure going to talk about it on Easter. Like it just wasn't going to happen. But I do think that to be good biblical scholars, that we need to at least address it briefly this morning. And that is this little phrase that we just read, the thousand years. Last week I talked about how God is going to bind up Satan for a thousand years. And if you know the book of Revelation, and if you've studied it, if you've heard anybody talk about it, you, you probably say, wow, what a what a, you know, what a guy that lacks courage. He didn't even address that. He just skipped right by it on Easter. Well, today I want to talk about it because, because even within these groups that I've just mentioned and their paradigms for understanding the book of Revelation, people split up on what, what is happening here. Because as I said last week, there's this line about God binding Satan. And then we read this very weird, odd thing. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. Like what is happening there? Why is God going to release Satan from prison? A question that I won't answer today. Um, but what is this even talking about? Uh, so let's talk about it. Just, I'm not, I, and if you're bored already, I'm sorry, we'll get to the application part, but I think it's important to address it because if you're gonna read Revelation 20, the question will just inevitably be there for you. Like what, what is it actually talking about? And so like, what is it? When is it? Is there a literal thousand year period where Satan is bound and then released? Is it symbolic? If it is literal, does it happen before or after the return of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And so this splits up. We have the four viewpoints of the book of Revelation, but then there's three viewpoints here that people argue about. And to be honest with you, it does, taint sounds so negative, but it does, um, it does turn or, or, how people read the rest of the book of Revelation as well. And so they go hand, this goes hand in hand with how people view the book broadly, but there is disagreement even within the camps. So the first view is amillennialism. And these people expect no literal millennial kingdom. They interpret this as being um, 
a symbol or a sign because, and, and to their credit, numbers in the book of Revelation usually seem to be symbolic. That is a part of apocalyptic literature. And so they, what they understand is that Satan's binding is the entire period of time between when Jesus ascended into heaven, when this is written, like early first century, until, until Jesus comes back, no matter how long that might be. Now, postmillennialism is frankly not that dissimilar. Uh, there is one major difference. They hold that this is, you know, we're kind of in the millennium. They agree with the, the, the interpretation with all millennials of Revelation 2010. Uh, they, they tend to think it's figurative and not literal. And so post-millennials share in that viewpoint that, that this thousand years is probably a figure of speech for this long period of time. Uh, the biggest difference between all millennials and post-millennials is simply that that post-millennials think that there is going to be a great period of, of, I guess, the golden age of the church, if you will, where everything kind of gets better right before the return of Jesus, where we make more converts and there's greater discipleship happening and everything is moving forward, you know, like revival style nature to the church leading up to um, the, the final return of Jesus where he sets up his kingdom. And so that's those two groups. Uh, and then we have premillennialism, which is simply that this thousand years will take place after the return of Jesus. And so after Jesus comes back, there will be this reign of a thousand years. And then at the end of that time, that age, uh, the final kingdom will come into place and, and, and everything will be made eternally right after Satan gets his little his little run around, he, he, you know, he gets to mess things up for a little bit at the end of this thousand years, and then Jesus finishes things, and it's all things new forevermore. So pick one and have a nice day, you know? I mean, like that's, uh, so let me just tell you, I think there are, there are problems with all three of these views, if I'm just being honest with you. I uh, I am not here to give you an answer, but I just think there's problems with all three of these views. And, and that's not just me. I mean, any, any smart, you know, Bible scholar, even non-smart Bible readers, they, they could, you know, come to some issues with these different things. Logically, uh, there's some problems there. Uh, theologically, it doesn't quite fit as easily as people would like to make them fit. And what you're forced to almost do uh, in some of these, view, in these views, I would say all of them, in some ways, you're almost forced to take other passages of Scripture and then shove your millennial kind of viewpoint into them and say like, well, it has to be this way, even though the plain reading of the passage before it is not quite as easy to put into that. And so you have to, you have to say, well, that must mean this because I believe this means this and so you go okay well one's got to be right and one's got to be wrong and and that's true I, I don't disagree with that but here's here's one of the things that I think you need to know all millennialism is the most popular in Christian history period at the innocence premillennialism is the most popular in American you know America today and really through most of our history okay 
There's been, a, by the way, a lot of good, solid, smart Christians in Christian history, a lot of good, solid, solid smart Christians in American Christian history, right? And then post-millennialism, less popular throughout church history, was subscribed to by Charles Hodge and Jonathan Edwards, not guys that were gonna be like, oh, look at those terrible people for their millennial beliefs. And so I, I say all that because at this point, you're like, what should I believe? And I'll just say, frankly, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know that I have a super strong opinion on it, to be honest with you. I have leanings, and then I feel my leaning shift, and then I have leanings, and then I feel my leaning shift. That's just where I'm at. And so here's, here's what I would say to you. Do a little research. Learn a little more. I don't have time in a sermon to hash this out very far, but learn some things about it. Look it up. Come to your own conclusion. See what you believe. And then be really kind to people who hold to a different viewpoint than you. Don't look at them as though they're idiots and you're smart because you, you, know, you read some things on the internet or in a, hopefully get a book even, that would be great. Um, like that would be really good. Uh, and, and just realize that there, there are problems with each of these views and there are really attractive things about each of these views. And I would say pick one if you want to or be like me and just cop out. Um, but like, I mean, but look into it and study it. That's not a bad thing to do. But then at the end of it, and I think at the heart of it, I think we should all recognize this. Postmillennials, forgive me. Satan is not done working yet. I think that that is really the key, like the impact here, if we're finding the impact, I've told you kind of the interesting things, but the impact here is that Satan is not done working yet. And so how, okay, we have these views and Chad didn't even make any sense. I don't even know what he just said for the last 10 minutes. Like what, 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 what am I supposed to do with this? And, and here, I think it's important because how we're supposed to be impacted, I think it doesn't really matter what viewpoint you pick. I think that the purpose of, of this little description that feels odd and hard to understand and I don't think any of us can really hold to with that, you know, with 100% certainty, I think the point is so clear. Here's what my professor said. The main purpose was to console, reassure, uplift, comfort, exhort, and encourage Christians in the face of such persecution from outside and heresy from the inside, but it also challenges them to remain faithful even to the point of martyrdom if it comes to that. I read this quote at the beginning when I started the book of Revelation, and I read it again now because we still haven't left the book of Revelation, and at the heart of all of this is, is an exhortation, an encouragement, teaching to Christians to say what I've said almost every sermon is to keep serving God even when it's hard because it is worth it. And today we face bigger rejections of truth in the church than I think we ever have, at least in American history. And we face greater pressure on the outside, at least and definitely in just American history uh, to, and as far as our Christianity goes. And even this passage, Revelation chapter 20, the chapter, even this is meant to be encouraging to Christians. And I think that the encouragement is this. Satan isn't done working yet. And these are what, this is what we're gonna read next. 
but someday he will be because God is going to put an end to him and all of the evil that we see. Listen to the next verses, Revelation 28 through 10. Satan and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The first thing we see here is Satan speaking his native tongue as it says elsewhere. He goes out and he deceives the nations. He does this from the four corners, which probably represents something global. Uh, Gog and Magog is a reference to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 39, and there God defeats his people's enemies. And so it's meant, I think, in some ways simply to be a reminder that, wait a minute, keep it in mind, God is going to win this battle for his people just as he has always done throughout history. Those enemies, they gather for battle. There's a lot of them, like sand in the seashore, and they come to wage war against God's people, they surround them. It looks like they're ready for attack. It looks like God's people are doomed. And then pretend I haven't read it to you yet. What would you expect next? If this was a movie, what would you expect? A huge battle scene, right? Lots of fighting, lots of bloodshed, both sides doing their best. The good guys seeming like they were gonna lose only to stand up to the sound of some Rocky music to bring Rocky into my sermon two weeks in a row to stand up and swing back and win the fight. But none of it. Did you notice what happened? They're all surrounded, God's people, and then it says, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is meant to demonstrate some things that we have been seeing throughout the book. God is in control. God is all powerful. God will win. And because of that, his people will win with him. There's no fight here. I mean, the nations are coming to battle against the people of God, the church. God's people are helpless and hopeless if there's a giant battle scene here. They're just going to get slaughtered. That's what it reads like. I mean, there's more than like the sand of the seashore. Satan's behind them. I mean, they've drawn up their battle lines. They've surrounded them. You never want to be surrounded in a fight. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. God is in control. God is powerful. And God wins. And so we who are on his side will win too. You see, I think we can feel this especially in our culture today, as, as I said, where there's more rejections of truth, more opposition on the outside of the church. We can feel as though the oppression and the opposition is rising and inside we can just wonder if there's any hope, like it's all gonna fall apart and, and it seems like they're winning, you know, in, our, in the culture war that we've seemingly been involved with for a long time. It's like we're losing that culture war and it scares us and it worries us. And, and, and here's this verse saying, even if the whole world marches against God's people, 
we don't need to be hopeless. We don't need to be worried because God in a second can send down his fire and devour those who oppose him and oppress his people. And not only can God, but will, God will, right? It's not only a can thing, God will. He is going to do away completely and utterly and fully and eternally with the evil that exists in the world, the evil that seeks to destroy the church. I mean, Jesus said it, right? Like the gates of hell will never overpower his church, his people, like that's never going to happen. And here in this grand apocalyptic scene, we just see that while it all looks hopeless and helpless, they look helpless. God is in control. God is all powerful and God will win and his victory will be given to his people. That's incredible. And notice what he does. He throws Satan into the lake of fire. Jim McGuigan says the lake of fire says he is altogether and forever defeated. No one comes out of the lake of fire to do anything. This is a doing away of evil forevermore. I started by talking about even when we look around, and, and I, I mentioned this either last week or a couple of weeks ago, every single person has a worldview. And one of the questions in a person's worldview that everybody answers in some way is like, why is there evil? Why is there evil? And as Christians, we have an answer for that question. I think one of the best answers that the world knows. I mean, why do people do these things that seem unimaginable to us? Well, that's because sin entered into the world. But at the beginning of that, the story of the Bible, like there was a, a, a thing, a being there pushing the sin and 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 drawing people to the sin, and, and that was the serpent or Satan himself. And, and so there's this evil creature that, that, that wants the worship that God has or, or that God should have, and he pulls people away, and there's darkness and there's evil. It exists in our world. And so people do these terrible things because there is evil, and we all have done evil things. We don't like to admit it. We like to, uh, to mask it. We like to pretend that it's something other than evil, but each and every one of us has done and do evil things, and we know it. And Christians, through the Bible, we can answer the, the why question to evil, right? Like, well, because sin, because Satan. But Christians also can say that there's hope despite the evil because God is going to do away with it all. He's going to throw it into hell. There, there's this, um, this just idea, this weird idea that seems to persist in Christianity that, that Satan rules over hell with this big pitchfork and he's the one that tortures people for eternity you've seen the pictures you know you've, you you've seen it right like this is a this is a meme that's existed for a long time but, but hell is a place that in some ways is created for satan and evil to be thrown when god does away with it forever if people often ask like how can evil exist when there's an all loving good, all-powerful God? And, and that's a hard question, an important question, one that I've sought to answer in sermons, but today I just want to answer it like this. Evil will not exist forever because that good, all-powerful God will destroy it. 
And we take hope in that. You know, there's this, this thing that gets said, and uh, Billy Graham said it this way, I've read the last pages of the Bible, it's all going to turn out all right. And I've heard it said like this, in the end, God wins. And here we have a statement about God's victory over evil. One of the ways God will make all things new is by completely, totally, eternally ending evil. But then there's this warning in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what we refer to as the great white throne judgment. And notice that heaven and earth are personified here, but they flee from the one who is seated on the throne, the one who can devour by fire, just, you know, with no, no thought at all. He just does it. He just does it. And they flee, but I'll draw your attention to death and Hades also being personified. And they, they're they like death and then this holding place perhaps for dead people. And they give up their dead and they are themselves destroyed in this scene. And then the dead, they sit before God in judgment. Listen to how Jesus describes this moment in Matthew 25, 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And what follows is a description that some, some will go into eternal life and some will go into eternal death. And so what we have here is really fascinating because we see this book of life and we've been introduced to the book of life. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And this is where apparently Christians' names go. Those who have been bought, purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Those who have come to believe that Jesus suffered and died for their sins and they've given their lives to him. They are in this book and they get to go to eternal life. And that's not even who is in view in this story that we're looking at today. Because those people have experienced the first resurrection. What is in view is this other group who have not accepted the salvation that Jesus offers. And it says that they too will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we don't like that, but it's a reality. And so what we have here is, a, is an incredible warning because notice Notice that it says they will be judged by what they have done. And what I want to tell you today, I think this is so important for all of us to remember. Even if we're Christians, it's so important for us to remember because this is so exciting if we're Christians. You will either be judged based on what you have done or what Jesus has done for you. You will either be judged based on what Jesus has done for you, dying for your sins, or you will be judged based on what you have done, your sin, your failures, and your evil. Now, if you're judged based on what Jesus has done for you, you know what? You don't have to worry about it at all. You look forward to a day 
where you are saved by the grace of Jesus and you look forward to a day where you will live forevermore and, and know that evil has been totally and utterly destroyed and you don't have to think about it anymore. You don't have to worry about sending your kids to school, whether or not they will get shot while they are there. All that evil will be gone and you will live in a perfect world. On the other side, you should fear it. Because if you're judged based on what you've done, well, you're a sinner. You've done evil things. We've already talked about that. You've thought evil things. You've said evil things. You've done evil things. You know it. I know it. And so this passage, as with most of the book of Revelation, does two things for us. For you who are not a Christian, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to embrace the salvation that he offers. You need to recognize that he is the one who died for your sins. He died to atone for your sins, to make right, to make you right. But you have to give your life to him. You must accept the gift that he has offered you. But then for Christians, if your name's in the book of life, you can celebrate this knowing that someday all things will be made new. There will be no more school shootings and no more war and no more sexual deviation and, and no more child abuse and no more profiting off of drugs. All of those things will go away and we'll keep living and it will be incredible. So what's the point here as we talk about a millennial kingdom and all of that? It's that, it's that there is evil and Satan's not done working yet. But someday, Jesus will put an end to that evil. And when he does, every person, every person will be judged based on what they've done or what Jesus did for them. And if we're on Jesus' side, then we will keep on living. We'll experience the first resurrection. We'll experience eternal life. And it will be done in a place forever where there is no evil. Let me pray uh, that you will be excited about that if you're a Christian. And you'll dread that if you're not. Lord Jesus, God, I, I believe that, um, I hope anyway, that there are people, God, listening right now who have never committed themselves to you. They've never accepted your gift of salvation. And that's why I try to tell this story so simply. It is not, as I say frequently, my favorite thing to talk about hell, God, and how people will go there right along with Satan and the beast and the false prophets, God. Uh, but Lord, I say it because I want people to come to you and I just think that that sometimes lord in modern american preaching we avoid hell and and we do it god to draw people in but then people don't feel the need to be drawn in because we don't tell them the negative side god and so i pray as i communicate these things today that that someone god and some people would recognize that they have done evil things and because of that they would turn their attention to you lord and they would they would say that right there is the savior that I need and they would give their lives to you so that, Lord, they can have what I want for all of us today and that is hope despite the evil that exists in our world. God, I, I think just because of the times in which we're living, we feel as though evil is ever increasing and, and I think even though we don't believe this necessarily, well, we don't believe it, I hope, Lord, but we, we don't believe that evil will keep getting worse forever and ever and that there's no hope and it will win and it feels like that to us, Lord. We see in this passage that you're going to do away with it and there is incredible hope in that. God, if you just, if you just took away 
the worst evils in our world, I would like living so much better. And Lord, I know, I believe and I know that someday I will live in an eternal state where there is no evil at all. And I look forward to that and I pray that we all would look forward to that. And when we read about or experience the heinous evil that exists on this planet, we would still be hopeful knowing that someday you'll snap your fingers, God, and you'll do away with it all. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.